turn to John's Gospel. We're continuing with our series in John's Gospel and it's chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been looking at that chapter for a few weeks now, I think. And today we're going to consider the preservation and the unity of God's elect. The preservation and the unity of God's elect. I'm going to read John chapter 17, first of all, 11 through to 12, and then verses 20 to 23. Verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Amen. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ there uh, to his heavenly father. So today we're going to consider God's protective care of his elect and the unity of the elect. In verse 11, looking at verse 11 again, Jesus said there at the beginning of that verse, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee. Let's be honest, Jesus was actually still in the world at that time. He said, I am not in the, I am no more in the world, but he was in the world. And very soon, he and his apostles would make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be betrayed with a kiss from Judas Iscariot, and he would be arrested, and then the next day, he would be crucified. Jesus was very much still in the world. So why did he say, I am no more in the world? Well, I've got a couple of answers for you. I'm not saying that they're the only answers, but the two answers I've got for you are, first of all, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that work would very much reach its fulfilment with Jesus sacrificially laying down his life at the cross for all, whom his father had given to him, and then he would rise again on the third day. The words, I am no more in the world, expressed the certainty of that happening. The absolute certainty. Secondly, Jesus said, I am no more in the world. I have finished the work which, if you look at verse 4 actually, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Really? That's what Jesus said in verse 4. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. 
And then again here in verse 11, I am no more in the world. And what what these statements do, apart from expressing the certainty of what Jesus had come to do, that it would be accomplished, but also it gives that high priestly prayer a, a perpetual status, perpetual status. In other words, it wasn't just a prayer for back then, for his apostles back then. It is, present tense, it is a prayer for us now who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he has finished the work that his father sent him to do. And he has returned to heavenly glory. It's a prayer for us. And that, is, that has to be my emphasis. I've got no problem with history. History is very important to us. Biblical history is very important. But if it was just history, that would not be enough. There has to be, it has to be relevant to us now. And this prayer is very relevant to us now. It's a prayer for now, just as it was a prayer for back then. Jesus prays for all true Christians whom he leaves in the world throughout church history. Looking again at verse 11, we see that Jesus said, Holy Father, look at it there. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee, Holy Father. Jesus called his father Holy Father. The triune God is holy. The Father is, as we see here in verse 11, the Holy Father. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Well, that leaves Jesus, doesn't it? So too is Jesus holy. For example, about 700 years before the Son of God was made flesh, and this this I always find particularly fascinating, the emphasis is on about 700 years before we read of Jesus, the word being made flesh or becoming flesh. The prophet Isaiah had a vision in which he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. This is all in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had this vision, the Lord seated high and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. This is the seraphim looking at the Lord uh, on his throne in the temple in that vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John chapter 12 and verse 41. You have to read it in context a little bit. Read the verses above it. But John chapter 12 verse 41 confirms that the Lord whom Isaiah saw and whom the angels in heaven declared to be holy, holy, holy was Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. The only time, coming back to Holy Father here in verse 11, the only time that Holy Father is found in the Bible is right here in John chapter 17 and verse 11. Nowhere else in the Bible. And as we see, that is a reference to the Father. 
that's very clear. Even so, Catholics wrongly addressed the Pope as Holy Father and sad to say, even professing Christians in Protestant churches, not all, but some Protestant Christians address or call the Pope Holy Father. That is so wrong. Can you see that? It's wrong. It's wrong that the Pope receives that name or that title, Holy Father, and it's wrong that we that anyone should call him Holy Father. That is the name that Jesus called his Father in heaven, Holy Father. In verse 11, Jesus prayed to his Holy Father concerning his apostles who would remain in the world. So you've got a contrast there. Jesus praying to not just his Father, but his Holy Father about those who are left in the world. There is a massive contrast there. I don't know if you can see that, the difference between a holy God and this world. This is a world whose God is the wicked one, the devil. Are you beginning to get the contrast now? This world is populated by people whose hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This is the world that we live in. Again, can you see the contrast between a holy father, holy God, and this wicked world that we live in? Truly a wicked world, populated by wicked people. People whose hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. In fact, not only does your heart deceive others, it deceives you. That's what people seem to uh, forget or they don't appreciate. You're, you, you, you may deceive others, but most of all, this is, this, this is the most serious thing, you deceive yourself. I saw some of that wickedness and that deceit, people deceiving themselves or kidding themselves on yesterday on an anti-abortion evangel- evangelistic time in Douglas Town Centre. Let me just give you two examples of how the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. First of all, I'll give you the example of a police veteran, someone who had 30 plus years of police service. And he appeared to be so deceived by his own heart. And the reason I say that is because he could not see the difference between a miscarriage and an abortion. He could not see the difference between a miscarriage and an abortion despite the fact that a miscarriage is unintentional and an abortion is intentional. For him, they are all the same, despite one of them being murder. And he was, or he is rather, a retired police officer. The second example I give you is a woman who was pregnant. She was pregnant and she explained to me that a pregnancy only becomes a baby when it is born. Can you imagine that? She had a baby inside her womb and she she was there looking me in the face and telling me that it only becomes a baby when it's born. These aren't examples that I've picked that hardly ever happen. 
I get this all the time when I'm out doing anti-abortion work. People who are so taken in by their lies, by these ridiculous lies. They've swallowed those lies hook, line and sinker. And they look you in the face and they get angry. And they tell people like me how wicked and disgusting we are. What for? Because we're defending unborn human beings. The morals of this world are twisted and they're turned upside down because of the the condition of the human heart. A heart which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not my words, but the words of the prophet Jeremiah in God's inspired word. And it's not just the hearts of those two people that um, I mentioned that I saw yesterday, two people who I prayed for, but this is the condition of our hearts, each one of us. Each one of us. It describes your heart, it describes my heart, but praise God who sent his son into the world to save such people, such people as us. Your heart deceives you into thinking that you are not as wicked as you really are. And I'm not talking about people generally, I'm talking about professing Christians. Another example, I I said I'd give you two examples, but here's a third example. Christians, people trusting in Jesus who believe that somehow or other we choose, well, of our own volition actually, we choose to follow Jesus of our own free will, despite the fact that all of us are far too wicked, far too sinful to ever receive Jesus of our own volition, unless God makes us willing. I don't shy away from these things because I thank God for those truths. If it was not for God taking the initiative, not one person would make that decision for Christ. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We really need to get with it as Christians and and embrace these truths. And the more we do that, the more we will appreciate what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. And we will get a, a greater understanding and love for God when we don't shy away from these glorious truths. Because there, there's the contrast. God, no, it will start with us here. We are wicked, but God is great. He is holy. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That's the scriptures. As for what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Holy Father in verse 11, what he prayed about concerning his apostles, he said, Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So Jesus prayed for a oneness, a unity amongst the apostles as he and his Father are one. You can be sure 
that was not the first time that Jesus had prayed to his father for, uh, what's he praying for there? He's praying to his father to keep, keep his apostles. That's actually in the, in the writing, in verse 11. Holy Father, keep through thine own name. Keep, that means preserve. He was praying to his father to preserve the apostles. And that would not have been the first time that he did that. For example, there was a time when Jesus prayed especially for the Apostle Peter. As it is written in Luke chapter 22 verse 31 through to verse 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan have desired to have you. You as in plural. So at this time, Jesus is saying that that, that Satan is desired to have you, all of you guys, all of you apostles, Satan's desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, you singular, I have prayed for thee, Simon, this is, Simon Peter, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, and he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. So what happened? Sure enough, Peter did deny the Lord Jesus Christ three times. But that prayer of Jesus to his Holy Father, it was answered. He was praying that uh, Peter would be kept, preserved, and that prayer was answered. Peter went on to be mightily used in the establishment of the church and in the formulation of Christian doctrine. Do you realise that not only the, the apostles of old, but also all of you who belong to Jesus, having been given to him by his Holy Father, are not only saved by the grace of God, but you are continuously kept, continuously preserved by the grace of God. With Jesus praying for you. This is the wonderful thing. Jesus praying for you, dear Christian, that your Father, your Heavenly Father, will keep you, that He will preserve you, lest you fall. Again, I'll give you examples. More often than not, when I close the service, I close with Jude verses 24 and 25. Let me just read it to you. I'll probably close the service with this again. But this is the words of Jude 24, 25. Now unto him that is able to, what? To keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. This world that we live in, the, the universe, it's continuous, continuously upheld, sustained by God. It has to be. Every moment, every indivisible moment, the, the universe is sustained by the grace of God. 
And that equally applies to each one of you Christians, you dear Christians, loved with an everlasting love. You are being kept by God. Don't imagine for one moment that you keep yourself. God keeps you. As the 19th century Southern Baptist theologian James P. Boyce rightly said, Indeed, such is stated to be the weakness of man that if left to himself, he would assuredly fall against the danger of which he is constantly warned, a danger to which even the best instructed and most sanctified, speaking of Christians here, the most sanctified are liable and which is evidenced by the sins which are committed which are often of a most heinous character. Again, he's speaking about Christians, sometimes extending to actual denial of the faith and backsliding from God, showing that but for God's mercy and grace, final apostasy would occur. But from the danger thus due to himself, he is rescued by the power and grace of God, who by his watchful preservation keeps guard over his unworthy children, preventing their total estrangement from him and bringing them finally unto the salvation he has designed for them. And all glory and honour goes to God. And not to us, nothing to us. We've just seen that God keeps or preserves his elect people whom he has given to his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, still in verse 11, we're given a reason why Jesus prayed for the preservation of his apostles. That they may be one, as Jesus and his Holy Father are one. And that comes up a lot, doesn't it? I pray for them that they may be one as we are one. I in thee, thee in me that they may be one. That was the prayer of Jesus, that oneness, that unity. Therefore, the unity of the apostles would be the consequence of what? Of intercessory prayer of the great heavenly high priest and the continuing grace of God upon them. And none of this was by the efforts of the apostles. It was all the prayer of Jesus, the grace of God, keeping them, preserving them as one. Jesus praying that his apostles may be one, as he and his father are one, cannot mean that he was praying that they would replicate God. That uh, You've got the Mormons, for example, that they, they actually believe that we become gods in our own right. Jesus was not praying for that, that we would become gods. Because the apostles, and by extension us, were and always shall be creatures of the Creator. We are his creatures. Also, Jesus could not have been praying that his apostles would always agree on everything. That oneness, does it really mean that we would agree on everything? As we progress through this um, chapter 17, this prayer, 
I hope you'll be the same as me in realising that everything Jesus prayed for, he got. You know, we pray things that are pretty outrageous at times. I do. I pray something. I think, why on earth did I say that? And I, I, I don't imagine for one second that God will answer that prayer in the way that I may have wanted <laughs> when I realise what nonsense I've just prayed. Different with Jesus. He is the incarnate Son of God, the beloved Son of God. And when he prays to his Father, I can only imagine that his Father delights in answering that prayer fully. So, again, when Jesus prayed for that oneness, did it really mean that there'd be no um, differences, no disagreements? Because there are, aren't there? There are disagreements in the church. There were disagreements with the apostles. For example, about 20 years after Jesus had returned to heavenly glory, the apostle Peter, he ate with Gentile believers in Galatia. However, when a delegation of Jewish Christians visited from Jerusalem, Peter distanced himself from the Gentiles. He saw these um, the people of the circumcision, Jewish Christians, who ca- they came along, so he distanced himself and he went alongside the visitors. Consequently, the Apostle Paul upbraided him for his hypocrisy and he did so publicly. Why publicly? That's a bit unkind, isn't it? The reason that Paul upbraided Peter publicly is because Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was leading people astray. He needed to be upbraided publicly in front of the people he was leading astray and those who had been hurt by his actions. It was a case of um, Paul doing what was necessary at the time. But you can see there was that disagreement there where the apostle Paul had to upbraid the Apostle Peter. And there was a time when the Apostle Paul had a disagreement with Barnabas over whether to take Mark with them on a missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take Mark. The Apostle Paul didn't want to take Mark. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, it is written that the contention the contention between Paul and Barnabas became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And we know that Christians do have their bust-ups, don't we? Let's not pretend that Christians do not have their bust-ups. We shouldn't, but we do. And the sinful flesh still rears its ugly head We still have our own selfish desires. We disregard what God wants and it's all about what I want. That still happens with Christians. Even so, that should not be the norm. After all, all that the Father has given to the Son are new creatures in Christ. Take that literally, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are become new. That's you if you're a Christian. All true Christians are indwelt 
by and sealed with the Holy Spirit. They all have the same hope of glory. They are all brothers, all sisters in Christ. And again, take that literally. Brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just some fancy language, it's real. Your, your, your natural brothers and sisters, uh, you'll, you'll die, they die off. But brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you like it or not, you're brothers and sisters in Christ forever. All Christians have the same holy and heavenly Father. The same Saviour who loved them and who gave himself for them at Calvary's cross. Washed in the same precious blood. Despite the inevitable disagreements, there really, really ought to be a unity amongst all true believers. Along the lines of what can be seen in the early church, look back to um, Acts of the Apostles, that should be the, the reality. Now, no reason why not. Someone explained to me why, well, that was back then, but it's different now. Let me just read to you what it was like back then. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And no doubt they did have their disagreements. But this is what it says. Acts 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that that uh, them ought of the things which possessed he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. That's the word of God for you. So, given that the apostles of old did occasionally disagree, and so do we who are Christians occasionally disagree with one another, what is that oneness that Jesus was actually praying for? What was it? The oneness would include a brotherly love. Back in John chapter 13 verse 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have one, uh, sorry, if ye have love one to another. Comes back to love again. However, we need to be very careful when we talk about love, because even pagans love one another. As Jesus warned his apostles back in chapter 15 and verse 19, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own the world would love his own but because ye are not of the world but I have chosen you out of the world therefore the world hateth you so Christian brethren love one another and they are hated by the world you've got to get the two there Jesus isn't saying that uh, you're going to be loved by everybody it's not saying that you, lo- you, you only love the brethren, by the way. Those who persecute you, you love them. You pray for them and you love them. And how do you show your love for them? You tell them about Jesus. If you are a Christian and you're not telling your enemies about the love that is in Christ Jesus... What kind of a love do you have for this world? But within the church, there really ought to be a love, a brotherly love, 
a special bond between all all true Christians. But it has to be a love that is in agreement with the word of God because as I say, even pagans love one another and Jesus said the world loves its own. There can be no fellowship between the children of God and professing Christians who deny the divinity of Jesus. Forget it. Or with people who reject that God is three glorious persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Last of all, last of all, in chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I love those verses. I, I know I often quote them. Very important verses. A lot of doctrine in those verses. Jesus, no, Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep and they are safe in his hand and safe in his father's hand, safe and double safe. And now in verse 12, let's have a look at verse 12. What do we read in verse 12? While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So you can have that picture of all of those whom the Father has given Jesus being safe in his hand, but the son of perdition. Not the son of perdition. The others, yes, but not the son of perdition. The son of perdition, or perdition means destruction. The son of destruction is a reference to Judas Iscariot. Even though he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, no less, he shared in that ministry. One can only assume that when Jesus sent them out, it included Judas Iscariot. And when they cast out demons and they healed people and they preached the word of God, he was there amongst them doing those things. He was also the treasurer, wasn't it? He held them, he kept the money bag and he, he, he had his fingers in the till. He used to steal from the money bag, which I guess is an indication that he wasn't really, uh, he didn't really belong to Jesus. Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, he most certainly did not have everlasting life. He was not one of the Lord's sheep. He never was chosen by God for salvation in the first place. Why? Because he's the son of perdition. And the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, it didn't just dawn on him or anything like that. He didn't just come to some understanding of this. He knew all along. Jesus knew that the apostle Judas Iscariot had not been given to him by his father, having been chosen before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew this. Jesus knows things. He knows everything. He knows the thoughts, the intents of our wicked hearts. Everything is laid bare before him. As Jesus said in verse 12, 
his destruction was in fulfillment of the scripture. Let's have a look at that. Yeah, it's right at the end of verse 12. None of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. I, I, it's reasonable to assume that Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew that that was the fulfillment of scripture. The, um, what was going to happen with Judas Iscariot betraying him and being the son of perdition. And back in chapter 12, verse 13 and chapter, sorry, chapter 13 and verse 21, at the Last Supper, Jesus said to the twelve, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. He gave advance warning. And then even further back in chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus said, Have not I chosen you twelve? He's chosen them to be his apostles. And one of you is a devil. That's in chapter 6 and verse 70. In finishing, let me ask you something. The hymn writer, John Newton, knew and he believed that it was God's grace that saved him when he first trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins and that it was God's grace that kept him or preserved him and finally that it would be God's grace that would take him home to glory. He wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home, all by the grace of God. What about you? Do you vainly imagine that somehow you are in charge of your eternal destiny, your eternal salvation, or do you truly believe that you are being saved, you are being preserved every moment of every day, by the grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are being kept by God, having trusted in Jesus, and the intercessory prayer of Jesus, and the grace of God alone, will take you home to glory. May that be each one of us here, trusting entirely upon Jesus, his intercessory prayer, and the grace of God. Amen.